So something I've gotten a few times now um, from some people when I'm talking about Stephen King or um, because they listen to the podcast is, uh, boy, you really hate Stephen King, don't you? Um, which I think is um, not an accurate statement. And it's, it's, it's kind of a black and white thing that I don't really go along with. Um, because, I mean, I can, I can read his books and I can see the problems in them and I can talk about them and I can analyze his books without, you know, um, hating him or loving him. I guess those are the two options they think exist in the world. I mean, I grew up with him, so I mean, I'm always going, he's always going to be like, you know, a part of my life and my reading history, but I can still read his books and analyze them and talk about things that are wrong with them and not want to kill him. He's your crazy Uncle Stevie. Oh my God, no, he's not. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, I mean, you're very uh, forgiving. You will mm. read him and enjoy him and appreciate him. And, and you have a, a more interconnected history with him, I think, than I did. I read a couple books of his when I was probably too young to be reading them because I didn't really get them. So I, I, I didn't develop much of an attachment to them, especially after reading everything we've been reading for this podcast. My Patience for him is gone. Good God. I'm only going to read the rest of it because cause you're making me. Um, <laughs> because I, I fucking hate this book. Um, I, I don't get any entertainment value from it. That said, I did enjoy Rose Matter as a as a novel. And as but I will um, I will agree with you there. Um, even as somebody who grew up reading Stephen King, and I, I read it when I was a teenager, um, I fucking hated reading it this time through, um, as opposed to, like, um, Rose Matter, which, you know, I kind of like re revisiting that, um, even though it's a hot mess, I still enjoyed reading it. Um, this one was, was torture. This really is torture. I, 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 I don't like a single part of it, and I just find it absolutely excruciating. It's very self-indulgent. It's mm. just, I feel like a lot of it is just him writing about the good old days yes. of racism and homophobia, and it's just boomer nostalgia porn, which is a phrase we've tossed around a few times, but this really is the ultimate example of that. Well, it's not. He wrote a book called uh, Hearts in Atlantis, which is a series of, I think, four or five different stories that are all a celebration of the 60s um, in some capacity, um, two of which are actually really entertaining stories, but um, that is like the, the height of his uh, boomer nostalgia craziness. Well, at least they're entertaining. This one, he seems to have forgotten how to entertain people other than himself. But I can't even say that because people like this book. Um, I don't know why. Um, he definitely needed an editor. I mean, most of this first half, we're having to read um, these long italic sections about the adults and their adult life and how they get a phone call and blah 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 blah. We know they're going to get a phone call. Um, it could have been done completely differently instead of making everything so long and drawn out like that. Um, but we have gotten off track. Yeah, who the <laughs> hell are you? <laughs> oh my goodness. Hello. Hello. I am Joshua Gross. And I'm Chance with a capital C Lee. And this is Gross Misinterpretation, the podcast where we discuss popular culture from a queer viewpoint. Today, we are discussing the first half of that bloated minefield of hate, It by Stephen King. Let's start with our dueling plot summaries. Okay, so, here we go. <clears throat> it, in excruciating detail, tells the story of 
a number of losers from Derry, Maine, who as adolescents in the 1950s were tormented by an unknown evil that, when not in the form of a clown, appears as a lame American horror figure, werewolf, mummy, etc. The losers are outcasts by heteronormative boomer standards. Ben is fat, Mike is black, Beverly has a vagina, and others have similarly unfortunate qualities. The group returns to Derry in the 1980s to face the same <laughs> evil again as it resurfaces like a nightmarish locust or really bad cold sore every 27 years. <laughs> okay, yeah, mine mine is not that well thought out. That was good. That was a good one. Thank you. <laughs> are you are you ready for my train wreck? I'm uh, well. I'm ready. It will be All better right. in the book. <laughs> That's probably true. Okay. <clears throat> In the first half of It, several adults get called back to their hometown in Maine to confront a terror that they combated in their youth. This book has everything. A terrible gay bashing, domestic violence, boomer nostalgia, fat shaming, spooky racism, and Stephen King whining about how no one likes his endings through a character clearly designed to be himself. <laughs> you know, I skimmed over, I must have skimmed, I skimmed a lot of this. And so I didn't realize, I, I remember, did you see It Chapter 2, the movie? Oh, I sure the hell did. Okay, yeah, so, you know, I remember that from the movie, because I saw the movie, um, but I, I didn't remember that in the in the book. Which part? The character that's basically him whining about bad endings. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's Bill, Stutter and Bill. They made a much bigger deal about it in the movie than they did in the book. Oh, okay. Why don't you give us the context for this big-ass doorstop of a novel? Well, it came out in 1986 and is considered one of Stephen King's classic works. It has the overblown huge size that gives it a misplaced epic feel like a few of his other doorstop-sized novels. It was adapted into a miniseries with Tim Curry in 1990 and made into two feature films in the last few years, the most recent in September. George Beam in the Stephen King story actually compares it to Hamlet, of all things, and Stephen Spignesi of the Stephen King quiz book says, It is my favorite Stephen King novel of all time, and it is also the novel I consider his best work. It has it all. And I don't think describing the novel as a magnum opus is an overstatement. Yeah, I think it's an overstatement indeed. Ay, ay, ay. Magnum opus, huh? Yeah. The book, which uh, just, it, it starts off on the wrong foot. and Oh, it I, sure I, the hell never, does. It never got me back. So why don't you talk about that? Um, it's funny that you should say that because one of my friends was talking about seeing the, the second movie recently before I had a chance to see it. Um, and she was talking about how it starts with that horrible gay bashing mm -hmm. um, and how that just kind of ruined the rest of the movie for her. Kind of just left a bad taste in my mouth and I, I didn't really care about the rest of the movie. And I was like, oh, well, I can definitely understand that. Yeah, that's how I felt about the book, especially because I, I, I just, I, I didn't care. And it's, it's, it's even more constant, I feel like, in the book, the homophobic ideas. Yeah. The movie, I kind of forgot it happened because the movie was such a piece of crap. So yeah, the, the book basically, the book and the movie basically start with this gay bashing. Um, I didn't know until fairly recently when I was researching that um, he based this whole gay bashing on a real life situation, um, which is really terrible for a variety of reasons where he lives in bangor maine back in the 80s there was a there was a gay man named charlie howard um who was um beaten up by three teenagers age 15 16 and 17 um they beat him up um gave him an asthma attack in the process threw him over the bridge into the river 
and he drowned and died. The teenagers, they went to jail until, like, they became of age. So not for very long at all. It didn't really get a lot of attention in the media or anything. But, I mean, it was a big deal for Maine, I guess. Um, and they did, um, Bangor did make, like, a memorial to him, which um, was vandalized in 2011. Somebody spray-painted, mm. like, fag faggot on it or something. And they had to clean it up. And it was just another reminder of how much further we still have to go, um, which is really depressing. Um, so there was a few things that stood out to me as I was reading the story of Charlie Howard, though. Um, he did seem especially effeminate which would kind of go in line with the portrayal that Stephen King does in the book. Um, but it's so way over the top. I mean, it's a lot. He makes the character of Melon, like, cartoonishly, uh, stereotypically gay. Swishy. Yes. Swishy. Way, way more so than was probably necessary. And he seems to have, um, like, Charlie Howard in, in real life, he... He struggled as a gay man, you know, a member of a marginal, marginalized community. He was homeless. He struggled to, to really find a place for himself. He had to live with other people for a while. And then he was slowly starting to make a life for himself when this happened to him. Um, and like, like the gays in the book, they're, they seem like the same kind of successful boomer people that Stephen King writes about. Mm. And so do the ones in the movie. The ones in the movie are, are pretty bland and um, nondescript and suburban. It also has a totally different context in the movie since the book takes place in the 80s and the movie takes place now, right? Right. I mean, there is, there's a lot going on in the 80s. Because um, uh, there was a lot less tolerance for gays and, you know, the AIDS crisis was going on. Which is something Stephen King also makes a joke about later on in the book. It was adult Richie um, doing one of his impersonations. And it was, um, what's the worst part about getting AIDS? Um, and it was like explaining to your mom about the Haitian girl you got it from or something like that. Oh. And I was like, oh, we're joking about AIDS and being racist at the same time. It gets better and better. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I think it's interesting how you talked about how the, the real person who was killed was of a, like a lower socioeconomic status than the one in the book. It's almost like Stephen King had to make them more affluent so we would feel sorry for them. Well, there's a, there's a lot of that in um, people that are writing about gays or like almost uh, fetishizing or romanticizing gay relationships or gay lives. They, they tend to, to forget the negative aspects that a lot of gay men can have or struggles or um, gay people can have, which is part of the problem with doing that in the first place, I guess. Yeah, I feel like when it's being romanticized, it's just the kind of like angsty nature of it, like unrequited love that people are attracted to for whatever reason in stories but no one wants to be a poor drug addict so that kind of bothers me about it also because there is a little bit of that where he's kind of disregarding like when i was reading this as a teenager um i knew i was gay already when i was reading the book i wasn't out but i i knew i was gay and i just appreciated the fact that there was some sort of representation at the time i think i remember that being a teenager it's like oh i'm so glad there's a gay in this story even though they're killed Right. <laughs> I really I really enjoyed Bride of Chucky because there was a gay character in it, but he gets mowed down by an 18-wheeler on the highway and, like, meat chucks fly everywhere. But I was like, oh, you know, that hopefully that'll be me someday. You know, I can be, be gay and proud for just a second on the highway, you know, until I get flattened like Frogger. Exactly. I mean, that barrier gaze trope is pretty ingrained in me. I was, uh, I'm not even going to go there, but 
I was so used to just taking Stephen King at face value because, um, you know, my mom, I was always reading him and I was reading him and I really liked him. And I, and I just, I assumed that Stephen King would not lead me astray and knew what he was talking about and knew what he was doing. Um, and I didn't have the knowledge or the experience to realize that while his heart might be in the right place, he's, um, he's using these stereotypes, um, and stuff that's actually harmful to the community. Um, he's also creating a supernatural situation out of a real life horror that happened and using it for entertainment, um, and adding a supernatural element to it and kind of diminishing in that way, kind of like he does in Rose Matter and probably a lot of books that he's done. Yeah. It's almost as if I, I feel like this is something where, you know, someone, you know, him, you know, well-to-do, you know, straight male, um, can't even imagine, you know, you can't even imagine that stuff like this would be that bad. Like in this book, oh, I can't even imagine that someone would do this. So it must have been something supernatural that inspired people to do it. Cause you can't even like understand the amount of hate that actually does exist in the world. There's, there's, hey. there's cause there's a distance from it. Exactly. And, um, and I feel like we're still living in that in, you know, now 2019 because like the 2016 election people are just like we're so shocked that donald trump could even be elected president it's like you don't understand that like there there are millions of people that think this you know just because a, a large segment of the population uh doesn't have to deal with it they just right. think it doesn't exist you know and it's such a shock that it doesn't exist right um and it's another part of stephen king's whole worldview that he presents in his books um, from this white cisgender straight um, boomer place mm-hmm. where women gays black people they're all on the the, the peripheral here um, you know and every, the main focus is on what he wants it to be on yeah um, the losers club especially you know the they all have something that that sets them aside, but the white characters need need something a little different, you know, like a stutter, um, or the you know the men do, or to be overweight, you know, that's what the white characters need. But the black kid's just a black kid, <laughs> right. you know, and and Beverly's just a, a woman, you know, young woman. So it's like that's that's what sets them apart from the norm of the time. The other thing about which, that, I mean, is which that... also, I mean, in a sense, I mean, that's not unrealistic considering, you know, it, it starts in the 1950s. That, that isn't un- unrealistic, but the, the novel doesn't engage with that in any sort of meaningful way. They also don't become part of the Losers Club until much later than everybody else. Oh, that's true. I kind of forgot about that. I remember that from It Chapter One, the movie, because uh, Mike is barely in it. Yeah. And they do... I, I felt I liked Beverly in the chapter one movie. But I did notice that um, it took a while before Beverly even came along. And then I still don't think Mike has joined the Losers Club as of the end of where we left off. Okay. Oh, yeah. So we should we should just uh, take this moment to say this podcast is about um, not the entire book. <laughs> we didn't mention that at the top of the, the, the show. So we've read in the book, part one, The Shadow Before, and part two, June of 1958. And did we read Dairy, the second interlude? Yes, we read Dairy, yes. the second interlude. So we next time we'll have part three, Grown Ups, to the end of the book. Yeah, and the second interlude was mostly the spooky racism part of the book. Boy, I pretty much checked out by that point. Well, let's we'll go get back to, that. to um, 
the the gay bashing. Wrap that up. Anything else you wanted uh, to say about that? Well, I wanted to talk about the movie. Can well, I do that? Real quick, let's finish the book part because there's lots of Stephen King's colorful slurs that he loves to come up with. My favorite being when someone says, let's go grease some queer meat. <laughs> because, boy, do I love me some grease queer meat, man, you know? <laughs> no one wants dry queer meat. Yeah, um, every time there is, a, there seems like Stephen King just revels in the opportunity to, like, have a homophobic character or a racist or misogynistic character that he can just spew this collection of um, phrases and words he's gathered up through his many years of I don't know what. Because, um, like, Rose Matter, it seemed like Norman was just a fountain of, of inappropriate phrases and words and comments and labels. Oh, God. Um, yeah, it was so much of it. We have in this one we have queer meat. We have fat little baby fag. That was, um, a, that was a new one. Yeah, it's like baby fag. I, I haven't heard that one. Bum punch or yours or Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> There's no quote around it. <laughs> oh, where was that? Um, page twenty-three. <laughs> oh my god, this book's so long. And who says um? Oh, dead strumpet. What? <laughs> <laughs> so bum punchers that's another one that uh stephen king came up with i wouldn't have just randomly used bum punchers okay yeah that just um, sounded like yeah. something that a normal human being might say <laughs> as opposed really well yeah i mean i could i could see that being like a typical thing you know like remember the one phrase that uh used to be tossed around a bit when i was a teenager was fudge packer Fudge Packer is one that I heard a lot too. Yeah. They must have been more more creative up in Maine. Or they just didn't like fudge or they did like it. I don't know. <laughs> Let me find this uh strumpet thing here. It's on twenty eight. I think it's a cop. Oh no, this is um This is when Don's talking about what Derry is really like. Oh. And he said and he said this and it just sounded it didn't sound like anything an actual human being would say. He said <laughs> It's a lot like a dead strumpet with maggots squirming out of her coos. Ew. Like, ew. And, ew. And, and like, this is one part of the 80s portion. And this isn't the 1880s. Like, no one says strumpet in the 20th century. Maybe he thought that's the way a gay man would talk. Because this is, this is Adrian Mellon's um, morning boyfriend. Oh, so they're like, oh, yes, honey. Dead strumpets, yes. Right. Yeah, I just thought that was such an unrealistic bit of dialogue there. I was, I had to mark it. When Stephen King was writing this book, how many gay people had Stephen King spoken with? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Not as in, like, I'll... he had a conversation with someone and didn't know they were gay, but Stephen King is like, I have this gay friend <laughs> who I talked to. Like, like, do you think he had spoken to a single gay person? I don't know. For most of his early career, it sounds like he spent most of his time writing and doing cocaine and drinking beer. Um, yeah, I should revise that. Do you think Stephen King has ever talked to a human being? <laughs> he has now that he's like a, a world celebrity and goes around and does stuff now. Mm. But at the time, I, I don't know. So did you want to talk about the movie part of this before we move on? Um, it was related to the homophobia. Um, it's just like... The movie just did the gay bashing basically the exact same way it was done in the book. Mm. 
And then they were kind of like, you know, let's try to make up for this bad gay thing in the beginning by creating one out of nothing at the end, um, where they decided to make Richie gay. So was for... he not gay in the book? Because I haven't read that far. No, he's not gay in the book. Oh, okay. Um, and they decided to make him gay. I mean, I guess if you're reading it with an eye for fan fiction, you could come up with him being gay. But it was never explicitly stated. And if he was gay, Stephen King would have written him more like the gays in the beginning, I'm sure, and wouldn't have made him um, such a main character. And I just kind of read me the wrong way because it seemed very fan fiction-y for one thing, but it was also still a barrier gays trope. I mean, it, one of them might not have been gay, but it was still a gay man crying because the guy he loved was dead yeah he still doesn't um, get to achieve any sort of romantic satisfaction right despite that um, other guy loudly reading that poem or whatever and then getting to be with beverly right good god well he wasn't fat anymore so it was okay for him to be with beverly yeah he was hot that's a different story. But yeah, it's almost like they were like, look, we made it better. And I'm like, no, you didn't. And I hate this. And you made it worse. Yeah. At least as far as the gays go. Well, let's talk about nipples now. Oh, my God, nipples. But before um, we talk about nipples, hang on. I noticed you mentioned on page 41 uh, how that guy, someone's mom likes Richard Dawson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And you know, I you mean, know, my dream, you know, if I had a time machine, it would be to go back in time and uh, be a woman and be on Family Feud and be kissed by Richard Dawson. Like, that's one of my, like, number one dreams. I feel like that's a solid dream. I love Richard Dawson. And I just thought it was, I had to look up because um, did Stephen King wrote The Running Man. Yes. And that was made into a movie uh, with Richard Dawson. Um Oh, Richard Dawson's like the host of the Running Man in the movie. Um, oh, that's neat. And but the but it came out beforehand. I thought it was one of those things like Stephen King did with Rose Matter, where he goes on and on and on about how great Kathy Bates is. Oh, she admitted. So I thought it was a Richard Dawson name drop because he was in the Running Man. <laughs> well, it could have been because Running Man was a Richard Bachman book. Oh, um, so no one so would have known yet, right? Right. Yeah. So I'm not sure when, you know, that came out in relation to, to it. Um, but the movie, but the movie hadn't been made yet. So that's, that's oh, okay. Richard Dawson's the actor in it. He's not playing himself. All right. So maybe I'm a little tired. That's okay. We're all tired. It's 2019, Josh. We're all tired all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So nipples. Um, oh, but uh, that Richard Dawson thing was from oh, um, Richard Dawson's nipples. The, the Jewish loser's wife. I think she was watching Richard Dawson oh, on television, which makes okay. more sense than him being in the 50s. I mean, he existed in the 50s, but that, not like that. No, that's right, because Family Feud was late 70s, early 80s. You're correct. Stanley. Stanley is his name, yes. Okay. Is that Boy. Um, Patricia? Do we talk about Patricia's nipples? Yes, that must be Patricia. Um, Stephen King talks about um, lady nipples quite a bit, um, but I don't think he ever mentioned any guy's nipples, at least not in the first half of this book. Um, and that's more of that trademark Stephen King male gaze thinking about lady nipples, I guess. Yeah, they're always hard and like ready to poke someone's eye out. And tingling or something. What well, was going on with... Trisha's nipples here. You called them her hard nipples of shame. 
But yeah, she's at, so she's at the grocery store and someone's laughing and she thinks they're laughing at laughing at her. So her nipples go hard and hurtful. And hard her and hands hurtful. Tighten on the bar of the shopping cart. And I then just saw that. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of like Jewish slurs. Hard nipples of shame makes me think of really really big man from Rocco's Modern Life and his gaze into my future. nipples of the future. So <laughs> Stephen King's always gazing at women's nipples of shame. Yes. And he gets so close. Uh, you know his eyes been poked out a few times. You know, so one of the few things I remember about the book The Shining, which I read when I was, like, way, again, way too young to read it. Is oh, I didn't when, know that. Uh, the Jack Torrance character's wife, what's her name, Wendy? Yep. Lays in bed and just, like, starts flicking her nipples. <laughs> Because I had never read anything like that in a book before when I was like 11. And it's a nipple thing. Stephen King has a nipple fetish. <laughs> he does. He goes on to talk about Beverly's nipples um, to quite an extent as well, I believe. Oh, yeah. I marked a couple instances of Beverly's nipples being one. They're hard as bullets. Watch out, kid. You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> and another time they're hard enough to cut paper, which makes no sense because, I mean, what are they, hole, hole punches? I don't understand. Oh, he's also talking about Beverly's husband and how he was a tit man, always had been, and tall girls almost always had disappointing tits. They wore oh. thin shirts and their nipples drove you crazy, but when you got those thin shirts off, you discovered that nipples were really all they had. Oh, how sad. And at that point, I... It moves on into Eddie's chapter, and I'm like, why weren't Eddie's nipples discussed this much? Oh, yeah, let's talk about Eddie's nipples. <laughs> I, I, I just started, like, absentmindedly Googling Eddie's nipples. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, what did that bring up? The first hit I get is a YouTuber named Eddie Spaghetti Nipples. <laughs> I'm gonna... All right, I think we've gotten off track. But his name's Sweaty, and his name's Eddie, and his nipples are made of spaghetti. This is a, a two-minute-long video. Oh, my God. I don't know why anyone would want to watch two minutes oh of no. that. Oh. Anyway, what were we talking about? A book? Stephen King? Nipples? Oh, oh, my God, Chance. Pull it together. I love nipples. Good. Well, where are we going to go from here? Um, we well, can't that talk kind about of... everything. That kind of leads us into um, the general misogyny of the book as well. There's a, there's a lot of violence towards women. Um, mm -hmm. That's a recurring theme in Stephen King's work, as we saw in Rose Matter. Also, Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne. The list goes on. Yes, because Beverly has found herself in an uh, incredibly abusive relationship. Yes, she's married, she's married her father, basically. Well, yes, because her father abused her, and now she's married a man who acts like her father. Again, we've got to be very clear with these Stephen King books, Josh. She oh, didn't yes, thank you. Marry her father. She didn't actually marry her father. She married the idea of her father. It could I could totally guess. be a clown who shapeshifted into someone else, but is her father. Right. Yes. 
I vividly remember Beverly's um, adult scene um, from, that sounded like she was in a porno. I vividly remember the part about <laughs> Beverly as an adult when I was a teenager. I gravitate more towards the female characters anyway. Um, but she gets the shit beat out of her and she has to fight back. And reading it over again um, as an adult, it was kind of alarming. Boy, he just wants people to beat the shit out of women, I guess. Or he wants to talk about it a lot. Well, like everything in this book, everything just goes on for way too long. We have to revel in the gay man being beaten to death. We have to, you know, see Beverly get beaten again and again and again. She's at least able to fight back. Yeah, she. well, she only does when something more important comes along. Like her call to go back to Derry um, because of this promise. That's the only reason she does fight back. That's true, because this is something that's happened before. Yeah, there's a lot of poor depictions of women in this book, um, mostly mothers and wives. Eddie's wife is a big, fat, screaming shrew um, that just howls and screams at him all the time. He's another character that um, has metaphorically married his parent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is he that one, the asthmatic? Yes. Okay. Well, it's like a uh, like Munchausen syndrome by proxy, right? She's made right. Him think that he's sick. Yes. And there's also plenty of bad depictions of overweight people as well. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Stanley's wife and her shameful nipples. Um, but yes, um, Stephen King also continues his tendency uh, towards fat shaming. Um, which is something pointed out to me by my friend Casper, I think, when we first started doing this podcast. Um, they said that was the one thing that they knew for sure about Stephen King, was that he loves fat shaming. Um, and he he makes that very clear in this book. Not only Eddie's fat, screaming wife, but we have um, Ben, one of the losers. That's basically his whole identity, is that he's fat. And then, like we said in the movie... Um, he can't get the girl that he's into when he's a kid and he's fat, but when he's an adult and he's all hot again, he can finally have the woman of his dreams. Was Stephen King ever fat? I can't ever imagine him being fat. He is such a scrawny, scrawny man and always has been. I don't think he ever was. Yeah, I just, I wonder, you know, where that, where that stems from. I feel like there's a lot of, again, people of his age and just like, fat well I'm, I'm mostly thinking of my mother but like that was the worst thing you could possibly be is fat yeah it's definitely society and culture especially of the time period it's just um, when he was so growing up intense like, well yes and they attribute lots of other things to somebody that is fat that they're that they're lazy that they are just eat garbage all the time and they just won't stop eating um all kinds of stuff um and they just turned it into a whole big thing yeah it's just it's always done as part of augmenting the element of horror yes like it's made worse by the fact that they're fat Mm-hmm. like it's it's bad enough that you have to have a ugly wife but what if she was ugly and fat then you might as well just die <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh there was other things i wanted to talk about well let's see josh we've talked about uh, <laughs> uh we've talked about homophobia We've talked about misogyny. We've talked about nipples. We've <laughs> talked about fat shaming. What else well, could there be? Um, toxic masculinity, which I feel like um, it showed itself in a couple of ways, especially with them all like worried about being faggots if they're like sensitive or they cry. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
remember there was that big scene, I think it was after the house on Nybolt Street or when they were talking about that. Is that where the leper is? Yeah. Oh, here it is. Page 335. I was talking about, look at this deeply instilled boomer toxic masculinity, preventing Richie from being comfortable comforting his male friend without worrying somebody would think they're fagolas. <laughs> fagolas. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Also, Richie is uncomfortable with Bill's crying and him sounding like a baby. It's ridiculous during this scene how much time they spend on Bill's crying and people finding out. Well, can you, like, a few pages before that, you know, where they this leper, like, crawls out, the leper says blowjob. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> like, why, why is that what he says? And also, like, just as an aside from this scene, how do people think this book is scary? Like, I read this shit, and it, I just find it hilarious, like, and not in the way that it's intended. Like, a, a clown that is shape-shifting into a leper and saying, blowjob. Like, <laughs> like I'm picturing some, like, old to lady be clear, reading, reading this book and screaming and, like, putting it down. <laughs> he was offering the kid a blowjob. Is that what it was? <laughs> Yeah, he offered this kid a blowjob like three different times, and he was like, for for like a certain amount of money, he'd he'd give him a blowjob. Um, and then like he's like, I don't. This was the clown. He's like, I I don't have any money. He's like, I'll blow you for free. Oh, okay. I I I don't remember that part. So the clown is shape shifting into a real leper that loves blowjobs. Um. Yes. Um. Let me go to that page. And like, were lepers even like people were still were had leprosy? Do does anyone still have leprosy? Like, okay. So he wasn't a real leper. Um. He was just a gross homeless person. Um. He possibly had syphilis, and that's why his nose was falling off. Um. But they were calling it a leper, and he might have like turned into a supernatural leper or something. Or well, he was actually no. turning into a. Was he the one that was also turning into a mummy? Well, I thought this was all the Pennywise. Well, yeah, but I mean, not currently. Oh. Oh my God! No, you're right. Because yeah, it's the, the clown. But so the, but lepre is he the leper slithers out, and he's like, "Blowjob," he whispered, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so this must be after his encounter where he was offered the blowjob, and then the leper whispers it again, "Blowjob, come back anytime, Eddie. Bring your friends." This sounds like a great Lifetime movie. Blowjob, he whispered. <laughs> like, that would be that's such a great Lifetime movie title. <laughs> Blowjob, he whispered, starring John Stamos. <laughs> okay, I found it. I had to go back another page or so. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so he sees something at the house, and it says, How about a blowjob, Eddie? Bobby does it for a dime. He will do it any time. 15 cents for overtime. That's me, Eddie. Bob Gray. And now that we've been properly introduced, so wait, which is he, another, was he a, is he a rhyming leper? Yeah, he rhymes about blowjobs. Wow. Yeah, it also has this other name, Bob Gray, which I had forgotten about because it isn't something that's mentioned in the movies. Oh, Pennywise which, is also Bob Gray. Yeah, he's introduced himself as that uh, at least two times in the first half of this book. Oh, yeah, I googled Bob Gray, and it brings me to. Uh, it like a it wiki page 
Yeah, and people have speculated that um, he may be inspired by this Albert Fish guy that I think was a serial killer. I think. Albert Fish? I think so. Isn't that what I wrote on the notes here? Yeah, but I didn't know if he was a, if that was another character in the book or not. Yeah, he was a American serial killer, child rapist, and cannibal. What a resume! Um, he was also known as the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the Boogie Man. Wow, this guy was active in the late eighteen hundreds. Oh, so I didn't know this. How did you find this out? I was looking up Bob Gray because I'm like, who the fuck is Bob Gray? And why does he say it? Like, we should know who Bob Gray is. Um, and it just led me to this Albert Fish reference. Oh, interesting. Okay. His Wikipedia page doesn't mention it. But it calls him the Gray Man. But not Bob. Also, I don't, I, for some reason, I didn't put down where I saw this. It could have been somebody's random blog. I don't know. That's okay. Uh, that was one of those notes that I never got back around to uh, expanding upon, I guess. Well, it'll give our listeners something to look up and tell us all about. Yeah. Oh, I'm a little all over the place today, so I apologize for that. That's okay. This book is all over the place, so it fits right in. We're going to get to racism eventually. But I did want to point out that um, there are two famous writers that Stephen King references in the first half of this book. Um, do you remember who they are? Don't cheat. I, I, I'm literally looking at it on the screen. Okay. Um, so it was William Goldman and Jacqueline Suzanne. So um, can I guess who they are? I know Jacqueline Suzanne is Valley of the Dolls. That's right. Is William Goldman the exorcist? I don't know. I know that he wrote The Princess Bride. Oh, so... <laughs> so, he, he, I like how you say, I don't know. He wrote The Princess Bride. You're right. He probably wrote The Princess Bride and The Exorcist. Well, he wrote a lot of movies, um, but um, he didn't write the original book for The Exorcist. He might have written the screenplay. I don't know. Um, no, he, he did not. He had nothing to do with The Exorcist. Okay, great. But he did write Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. Yeah, he did a lot of popular movies. It's just The Princess Bride is the one that sticks out in my mind. He also died fairly recently. Oh, that's right. A couple years ago, yeah. Um, but I mention this is because both writers, um, they're both writers who had great um, commercial appeal and success, um, so which is also which is also something something Stephen King is also a, a writer with great commercial appeal and success, and he also seems to champion that um, and places his value in the number of you know books he's sold as opposed to the the quality of his writing, which I thought was interesting. Oh, Unfortunately, William, William Goldman wrote the screenplay for Misery. Oh, <gasps> and he did a did a good job. That was a good movie. He also wrote the screenplay for Dolores Claiborne. That isn't why I gasped. And he wrote the screenplay for Maverick. Oh yes, I did know that. Oh, um, I watched Maverick this weekend. And the Dolores Claiborne screenplay was was a, an amazing thing. He did a great job turning that book into a movie. Well, too bad there, he didn't work on the screenplay for the It movie. Yes, that would have helped. Um, I didn't uh, mark when um, William Goldman was mentioned, but I did mark when Jacqueline Suzanne was mentioned. Oh, it's Bill's wife. She's talking about her drug addiction before she met Bill. 
A popper in the morning, coke in the afternoon, wine at night, a volume at bedtime, Audra's vitamins, too many important interviews, too many good parts. I was so much like a character in a Jacqueline Suzanne novel, it was hilarious. Yeah, he had a hard time with his dialogue in this book also. Maybe it was the drugs talking. He's had a hard time with his dialogue for 70 years. He was still writing about crack snackers in 2017. <laughs> that's right. Um, that is, yeah, that's right. He still used the same term in Elevation that he used back in Rose Matter. Mm -hmm. And I'm never going to forget it. I don't think our listeners will ever forget it, too. We've said crack snackers about a million times now. I think every episode I say crack snackers. <laughs> All right, now like, people got to be listening for that. We could read a children's picture book, and as, as we sign off, I'm going to be like, see you later, crack snackers, just to <laughs> make sure I say it. It's our little where's wall. It's like, it's like Richard Scary's Busy Town, except instead of gold bug, it's crack snackers. <laughs> Moving on to racism. How's that I, for a segue? I feel like that's like Stephen King's outline. He's like, he's got, got some boxes he's checked. And he's like, all right, let's move on to racism now. Check. <laughs> Let me throw in as many N-words as I can. Oh, that reminds me. Before we move on to racism, um, we tried to download a PDF version of it so that we could search it for the number of times fag or some variation of fag or faggot was used in the book. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think we were successful because we only came up with 23. And I was like, there's no way there's only 23 instances of this. Um, but to be fair, most of them probably took place right up there in the beginning of the book. Yeah. And I mean, and he has other phrases that he uses, you know, I mean, you got it. One thing you got to give him credit for is he's creative. That's true. So I guess 23 you know, is kind say, of a large amount. Why say fag when you can say, you know, grease queer meat <laughs> you just wanted an excuse to say greased queer meat again That's didn't the only you one i can think of right now i wish i could remember <laughs> some of the ones from the poor greasy queer from rose matter remember yeah the one who, like, uh -huh. puked up a whole quesadilla because he was mexican right oh yeah he was um there were a lot of um colorful colorful gay terms in that too but why don't you talk about racism since okay. that was also racist in Rose Matter. Um, and I'll go, to, I'll find our Rose Matter doc and see if I can find any while you're doing that. That'll be fun. Anyway. Memories. <laughs> when it comes to racism, um, he ramps up with um, anti-Semitism to begin with because oh God, there's Stanley. Yeah. Stanley's identity is that he's Jewish. Um, and that's really about all there is to Stanley is that he's Jewish and he marries a nice Jewish woman that worries about her nipples in the grocery store. Um, and then ends up killing himself because he doesn't want to go back and, uh, and face the it. They, um, they tried to give him kind of like a redemptive story arc in the it movie, if I recall. Oh yeah. He um, writes some like sweet heartfelt letter. Right, and he's like, I knew that it would be better if I didn't go or some shit like that. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, so there's a lot of phrases and euphemisms for Jewish people that also comes up in there as well. Because like we said, any opportunity for Stephen King to uh, pull out his racist, homophobic, misogynistic thesaurus, um, he does it. 
Do you think Stephen King's ever called like a straight white guy a douchebag? Oh, I don't know. I Maybe mean, we should pay more attention when we're reading his books. Or if it's only... Because that's like the only thing you can call a straight white guy is a douchebag. I can think of lots of things. Well, you know what I mean, though. Yes. Okay, it isn't going to turn himself and turn him into something else. But if you can think of lots of things, please say three of them. Go. Fuck wad. <laughs> but anybody. <Shithead. laughs> but anybody can be a fuck wad. You know, I feel like you specifically have to be like a white straight guy to be a douchebag. Like if I was calling, if I was like Josh, you douchebag, it would be because you were acting like a straight white guy. <laughs> It would be like, excuse me, Chance, I can't finish this podcast. I need to go play golf and squeeze a woman's ass. Ugh, you douchebag. There we go. <laughs> I thought instead of golf, you were about to say Call of Duty. Oh, okay. I, I'm dating myself, I guess. Uh, that, that is You're a better reference. Douchebag. Yeah. You're an I'm old affluent douchebag playing golf. Excuse yeah. me. Go off to the country club. You're a country club douchebag. <laughs> oh, thank you cart. for reminding me how how Trump old I am. On it. Yes. No, I think you have a golf cart that has a flag on it, but one of the stripes of the flag is blue. Right. So we, I'll think about that later. Did you want to talk about racism? I thought we were talking about racism. I'm in the middle of racism. I was talking about anti-Semitism. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but then we get into, um, I'm sorry I interrupted you, you greasy little penis back. <laughs> <laughs> how did I forget that? Oh my God. How did I forget that? That, yes, I remember yes. that now. You stinking little rump wrangler. Penis vacuum was literally the funniest one. You I couldn't believe it. cock gobbler. You welfare lesbian. This is what our podcast is going to turn into. Chance just calling me homophobic <laughs> names. <laughs> okay, I'm, I apologize. I'm sorry. Before I talk about the um, African-American racism, though, let's talk about penises. Oh, I love talking about penises. So in 1879, a crew of lumberjacks found the remains of another crew that had spent the winter snowed in at a camp on the upper... Uh... <laughs> this is not how I expected. I've never... <laughs> I've never been like, let's talk about penises. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, let me, let me put on my bifocals and talk about some 19th century lumberjacks. I mean, I would love some 19th century lumberjack cock. Don't get me wrong. But like the way this started... <laughs> Oh my goodness, Chance. Please, I need to get through this. It was like I pressed play on the wrong YouTube video or something. <laughs> I was like, ooh, I'm going to get ready for some hot porn. And then it's like the History Channel in 1891. Some lumber. I'm like, oh, fuck. Wrong I'll admit, I don't know why I decided to start so far back in this section, but I needed the context, I guess. I was like, hang on, let me alt tap back over to Pornhub. There were nine of them in all. All nine hacked to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> heads had rolled not to mention arms a foot or two and a man's penis had been nailed to one wall of the cabin oh so i think stephen king has a thing about penises and things happening to him to them um there's this example and i can think of at least one off the top of my head was in um the dark half where um a guy's penis is, is cut off and shoved in his mouth after he's killed um, and they they find him like that. 
Well, one of the only things I remembered about the book It was that I had, I picked it up again. I was in the sixth grade because uh, my, you know, mom had no control over me, I guess. And um, I had the little book and I'm reading it. And I remember stopping when they were describing a man who was found in the sewers and fish had eaten his penis off. And that's on like page six. Oh, right. I forgot about that penis. Yeah, so there's every time something well, bad didn't. happens, he he does he always wants to mention what happened to the penis or something horrible happens to the penis. Those fish I wonder were some it, greasy little penis vacuums. They just <laughs> suck that right up. I also remember from Pet Cemetery. I remember this stuff stands out. Um, yeah, I remember from Pet Cemetery. The guy is uh, going over like a fence. And he's scared because it's got like little sharp things on it, like fences do. And he's scared. What if I fall and the point impales me and like pulls my testicles out? Yeah, was he like worried it was going to rip his nutsack? Because I'm starting to remember this. Yeah, now. and his balls are just going to start flapping out. <laughs> hey, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I gotta wonder if it's like some sort of a complex that Stephen King has or something. Well, it's just so simplistic. It's like, can't you think, there are so many worse things that could happen to you than your penis getting bitten off, unless you're like a certain type of person. Yes. Like, I feel like there's a certain type of person who, if they could choose whether or not to get shot, like, in the neck or in the dick, they would pick the neck. Heaven forbid something happened to their glorious penis. Right? Like, it's like, you have a choice where I can, like, lobotomize part of your brain or like cut the tip of your penis off and they would pick brain uh, this is a good talk about penises i should probably get back to racism though okay so the bulk of the 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 racism and this really does feel like he went from one subject to the next like i'm gonna make spooky misogyny i'm gonna make spooky homophobia now we're moving on to spooky fat shaming and spooky racism each character is just a walking like stereotype yes um and mike in the interlude is um being told by his father um about this army corps in Derry that was exclusively black men um and how they were tired of the black men coming into town and hanging out at the the bars that the white army guys hung out at so they made them go make their own bar and then their their bar became more popular and everybody wanted to go to their bar and then the clan came down and set it on fire. Yikes. Yes. Um, it has um, a reference to Dick Halloran, which is um, literally... we're talking about Dick anymore. Oh my god. Good one. Dick Halloran is a character and um, the magical Negro from The Shining. Oh, um, oh yeah, that's right. He is very literally um, a magical Negro of that trope. Um, he has magic powers. His full job is to protect and help the white people, and he does so at um, his own expense. Um, I don't remember what happened to him in the book very well, but I remember in the Stanley Kubrick movie, it's like, okay, I'm here to save everybody, and then, like, wham, he's killed. Is he, like, axed in the back? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess I only remember the movie, too. Again, I only remember the nipples from the book. Well, that's probably the most important part Stephen King wanted you to remember. The nipples? Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't remember Dick Halloran's nipples. 
So I thought it was interesting that Dick Halloran makes an appearance here in the It book. Um, and the, Is this before or after The Shining? It's after. Okay. And Mike himself is is a follows a little bit of the the magical Negro trope. Um, I mean, he doesn't have literal magical powers, but he does seem to be there to keep everything organized and to help the white people, um, and you know, let them know they got to come back to Derry now. He's like their um, little guide, right? And we discussed this trope, the um, Sherpa across the mountain of evil, right? And we discussed this trope back with Rose Matter, um, where there was that. You know that that black woman uh, she met in the painting. Oh yeah, um, who secretly had his wife's name. But that's a that's a popular thing that Stephen King likes to do through so many of his books. I remember when I first discovered this trope and its connection to Stephen King, and then I went through and thought about all the Stephen King books I had ever read, and so many of them had that trope in it. I just I couldn't believe it. I was like. Is he doing this on purpose? Does he know that he's doing this? Is this the only thing he can think of to do with black people in order to include them in his books? What do you think? I, I, I think it's the latter, yeah. Um, he, I remember, uh, when was Cell written? 2003, 2004, 2005? It, um, it was early 2000s, yeah. Because there's a flying psychic black guy zombie. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of examples. There's Mother Abigail in the stand. Um, Whoopi Goldberg's going to be her. Yes. Um, that'll be the second time Whoopi Goldberg is um, playing a magical Negro. The first being in um, Ghost. Ghost. Oh, I do love Ghost, though. I do, too. But, I mean, she was literally a magical black person helping the white people at a possible expense to herself. That's true. But Patrick Swayze was cute. Also, I guess she kind of does that in Sister Act, but I mean, she also had her own reasons for that, too, so it wasn't too terrible. All right, so do we have anything else to talk about um, this book? Um, not especially as far as major themes and stuff like that goes. Um, I did find it interesting when they were talking about Eddie and the um, the uh, X-ray shoe machine. I just, I was so baffled that something like this existed, so I had to look it up. Um, it totally does. It's this big box, um, a big wooden box that you put your feet into in, um, while you're wearing shoes, um, and they peer in, and it literally x-rays your feet so that they can see if they're fitting in the shoes properly. Um, and just about everything about this could expose you or the person doing it um, to extreme levels of radiation. Wow. That sounds like an Elton John song, Eddie and the X-Ray Shoe Machine. <laughs> but that was one one instance where his mother wasn't being ridiculous. Um, he did need to stay away from that machine because um, it it would give him um, problems. Yeah. But there's a neat YouTube video um, of people um, looking at those machines and like the kind of the different styles that there were. Um, and how they worked. Um, and they're really interesting, um, but, you know, they're also death boxes. Well, after I finish watching Eddie Spaghetti Nipples, I'll watch that video on YouTube. OMG. Yeah. So was there anything about the first half of It that you especially wanted to talk about? Oh, my goodness, Josh. I am so glad that you asked. When we read the short story, A Very Tight Place, I was reading that tour reread thing. Um, which is yes. kind of garbage because the guy really loves sucking Stephen King's dick all the time. He sure but, does. But but one of the, the commenters aren't uh, always as, as worshipful 
um, as the writer is. And there was a commenter who mentioned how that protagonist at a very tight place was gay. And he said there was a supporting character in Cell, which I don't remember because I only remember the flying black guy. But he said, we've come a long way from the rather odd portrayal of Adrian Mellon and boyfriend in It, who, to paraphrase Time Magazine at the time, made homosexuality look creepier than kitty torturing. <laughs> That's a really good quote, and I'm surprised that came from Time Magazine, which I don't really think of as like a, you know, forward thinker of anything. I'm surprised by both the Time Magazine aspect and the at the time aspect of it also. Does he mean at the time yes. the book came out? I think so. So I, I tried, to, I've, I'm, been, I'm trying to find this magazine and maybe I'll be able to find it through by the next time we have, we record our podcast. I was trying to log on to the Time Magazine databases at the library and failing miserably at it. I can find the cover of an issue when it came out and it didn't, uh, the little snippets I read were not in the book's favor they seem to really hate it <laughs> well yeah everybody back in the day when he first came out with these books seemed to have like you know a sane understanding of his writing and then everybody after growing up with him and him being so idolized and prolific and all these adaptations being done um where there's kind of a skewed opinion of him now well critics definitely hated him Yes. Which goes back to what you said about him mentioning Jacqueline, Suzanne, and Princess Bride Daddy, whose name I can't remember, William Goldman, because he values his popularity. But he does want to be included in that literary crowd. It's just this eternal source of angst for him, I feel like. Wasn't there a part in the book where he's talking about Bill and Bill being in college and the guy, his writing class and the writing teacher not liking his writing and then him submitting it to like a horror magazine and then publishing it and then him coming back and shoving it in his face? I vaguely remember that. That sounds like something, some well, sort of wish fulfillment that Stephen King would include, this sort of pettiness. Look how much I succeeded despite what you said about me. Right. Like he's bragging about how his worth is all based on his financial success, which I thought was, was weird. That is weird, but not unusual, I guess. I mean, I it, guess it, not. It kind of fits his character. Yeah. But one thing, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but there's a Stephen King essay that I teach in my writing class sometimes. And I always have to explain to my students that this essay was written at a time when people, he wasn't critically accepted. He was commercially successful, but the establishment didn't really like him. And they don't get it because they all think he is some sort of literary author. Right. Who, yeah, because ever since he wrote that Stephen King on writing book that people love, they think people that, do. They think that he is a, a craftsman, and well, and half of that damn book is um, memoir. Yeah, it's. Um, I was pretty surprised when I read it. I was like, um, "This is like a good fifty percent just memoir." Before he even starts talking about writing or his opinions on the matter, and I'm sh he has some fine advice, but to act like he's some sort of cunning wordsmith is ridiculous. 
Do we want to do our quiz now? Yeah. Are you ready to take this um, Stephen King quiz about it straight from the Stephen King quiz book? Yes, I'm always ready for a quiz straight from the Stephen King quiz book. My grandmother bought me the Stephen King quiz book back in uh, 2001, I think mostly because she just liked buying things off the internet. Um, And she saw this and she's like, Josh likes Stephen King, I'll buy him this. And I really had no use for it when I got it, but I was like, thanks for buying me the Stephen King quiz book. Um, I think she also made me pay her back. And then I carried it around for the longest time until I think I sold it a couple of years ago um, to Powell's. And then I might have bought the same copy back from Powell's because they only had one copy. And that's the same Powell's that I sold it to. Wow, you should have some DNA testing done on it and see if they can find one of your one of your fibers on it. Wow, thank you so much for pretending to care about this dumb story I was telling about this book. I love all of your dumb stories, and you know it. <laughs> I just wanted to give a little backstory about why I suddenly have the Stephen King quiz book instead of desperately scrambling to create a quiz at the last minute. I love that the Stephen King quiz book has serendipitously fallen into your lap. Um, And I think I mentioned most of the ridiculous things that he had to say. He says, It is quintessential king and quintessential horror, and yet there are moments of such sublime tenderness in the story that many times I found myself absolutely lost in the forest of King's words. A magnificent novel that stands as an American classic. That is almost as bad as some of the blurbs Stephen King writes. (laughs) I know, like... What was that one we were, t- oh, the one for Silence of the Lambs, how ridiculous that one was, or Hannibal. Yes, and there was one, oh, I may, I'll try to find it for next time. I was reading something recently that Stephen King had written a blurb for, and I was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me with this shit. Oh, okay, I know what it is, but I don't have it right now. I'll get it for the next episode. That's fine. We have a whole nother episode about it to talk about. Mm-hmm, and hopefully I'll be able to read it by 20... 21. You can do it, Chance. I believe in you. Thank you. So you're going to have to bear with me because these questions are for the entire book, not just the first half. Um, And they're divided up into three sections, which we will dip out of in order, I guess. So let's start with people. Okay. I'm going to scroll down to the bottom so I can keep track of how many I get right. And some of these are super easy. Um, I'm just going to say all the ones that relate to what we read so that we can have something to talk about. Don't set me up. Don't say this one's super easy and then ask me and then I don't know. So, what was the name of the only loser to remain in Derry? Mike Hanlon. You got it. Correct, X. What was the name of the only female loser? I don't remember her last name, but it's Beverly. Yes. Beverly. What was the name of the... Lipshits. What was her last name? It was not Lipshits. No, I know. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. (laughs) What was the name of the loser who committed suicide rather than return to Derry and once again face it? Stanley. You got it. Uris. What was the name of the cook at the black spot? Oh, I don't know. Is that Dick Halloran? You got it. Yay. Only because I talked about him for 20 minutes, but still, good job. The place was called The Black Spot? I know, isn't that terrible? Oh my goodness. Like like a melanoma. <laughs> uh, let's. Should we do all of these? Because he's going to ask you a question about every single loser. You should ask me 10 questions. 
How many are we at now? You've asked me four. Oh, then we better skip all of the rest of them. Um, what were the name of the three creeps who tormented the losers as kids? Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember at all. You don't remember any of them? No. One of them's a bodily function. Belch. And his last name... Ralph. Ralph. Is also my sister's last name. It's Ralph. Ralph is not the correct answer. That is not his last name. His name is not Belch Ralph. <laughs> is his name Belch? Yes, it's Belch. His name, oh, his name is Belch Huggins? Yes, Belch Huggins. <laughs> oh, maybe your sister will have a baby and name it Belch Huggins. I hope not. I um, hope so. It could be a middle name. And one of the three is a pretty big character because he also, it talks about him as an adult too. And he goes to the mental institution. No, I know, but I don't remember his name. All right. Henry Bowers. And the other one was Victor Chris. Where really did the losers build? Oh, sorry. Where did the losers build the dam? In the river. Uh, Near someone's okay. house. So in the river doesn't count because, I mean, where else are you going to build a dam? Like, in a, uh, it was near someone's property, right? There's a name for the area that they were in while they were building the dam. The runoff sewer area. Uh-huh. Yeah, what's it called? The levee. <laughs> the septic zone. So let me just clarify for our listeners here. So you've seen both of the new movies. Um, have you seen the, the miniseries also with Tim Curry? When I was 10. And you've read half of the book. Okay, uh -huh. we're just making sure. This is insulting. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Wow. I was just kidding. Recent I did not mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> what is it? The Barons. Oh, the Barons. Oh, I knew that. I thought you might. You're probably just getting sleepy. I am sleepy. These are going to get harder. Okay, good. From where did the two dead kids come from who chased Stan while he was out bird watching? Um, uh, uh, the sewer. No, well, more specifically. Um, a drain pipe. What's it called? The drain pipe. <laughs> you've got the and you've got pipe. You just need to... Fix that middle part. The crack pipe. <laughs> it's the stand pipe. Um, and I remember this one because, yeah, when I was a teenager, I did not know what a stand pipe was. I didn't know what it was supposed to look like. Um, and his descriptions of it weren't really that great. So I was just thinking of like a pipe coming out of the ground. But it's also, it's literally like a, a water tower. It's oh, pretty it's cute. I love a little stand pipe. Look how cute that is. Yeah, it's like a water tower that you can climb up onto. This one had a like a, a platform, a viewing area, mm -hmm. um, in, in addition to um, where they held all the water. Oh, well. Wow. So I did a Google image search for standpipe. And on the too. fourth row of mine, it's the Thomas Hill standpipe of Bangor, Maine. Oh, I did think that Bangor was uh, probably dairy and... 
Vice versa. Ooh, you can go on a tour of the historic Thomas Hill standpipe. Um, there's only three of them a year. The December holiday tour is to be determined. Maybe I can go. You're the only one of us that lives close enough to do that. So if you do do that, I want you to record all your thoughts and feelings about it and then tell us all about it on our podcast. Ha ha ha, you said doo-doo. Also, if you're going to go to Bangor, you might as well stop by Stephen King's creepy house. And maybe I can see the plaque to the poor young man who was murdered. You could do that as well. In fact, that should be your first stop. Because that is a real tragedy. Um, every is. time I read about that story, it just makes me so sad. It's very upsetting that it was exploited in this book and then furthermore in the movie. Yes. Do you want a really hard one or do you want a slightly easier one? Well, I'm not doing a good job with either, so why don't give me? Oops, why don't you give me one of both? What was the name of Bill's bike? Gladys. <laughs> no, um, that's Flavia Deluce's bike. Old silver, silver, silver. You got it. Okay. Uh, and you said you wanted a hard one too, huh? Oh, I thought that was the hard one. Oh wait, we haven't got to that part yet, so never mind. I was going to okay. give you a hard one that we hadn't even read about yet. Oh, no. well, I wouldn't have even known. I would have been like, oh, I don't remember that part. So you've asked oh, me four, five, six, eight. You can ask me two more questions. Uh, okay. This is sort of a hard one. What was Richie Tozier's listener's all-time favorite character? Like a bit voices that he did? Yes. Is it a racist one? Most of them are. So that's a yes. Is it a Mexican one? Is it like Speedy Gonzalez? It. It's probably the least racist one. I, I have no clue. I can't remember any of his characters other than the one that I won't say. I know. And I forgot that I kind of wanted to talk about this. Um, um, how there's kind of an inherent racism in a lot of people that do character voices like that um, in yes. comedy. So, sort of like um, Hank Azaria and The Simpsons and um, oh Peter Sellers. Because Peter really Sellers, him, but I mean, he I did know a lot of is. movies where he would play characters that were not, you know, necessarily um, his race. Well, Hank Azaria in the Birdcage makes me want to scream and die. Yes, um, Hank Azaria has done the exact same thing. Um, he played a Guatemalan in the Birdcage, um, and an awful gay stereotype as well. Is he a poo? Is he what? A poo in The Simpsons? And he's a poo in The Simpsons. Did you watch okay. that uh, documentary about a poo? No, I didn't. I did, and um, I'm glad I did. And I think The Simpsons' reaction to that was pretty pretty shitty. Yeah, they did not do a good job acknowledging that. Anyway, I... Defensive, I've... like old people do. They really did, um, which doesn't surprise me, considering they are so old at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, the answer to the question, though, was Colonel Buford Kiss Dribble. Wow. These are that so ridiculous, like a, too. That sounds like one of Stephen King's gay slurs. <laughs> Maybe that's the name of his gay best friend. <laughs> All right, one more. Oh, do you want a hard one or do you want an easy one? Oh, my God. Give me an easy one. I'm failing. Okay, what did people usually see floating around after a manifestation by it? Balloons! The answer is balloons, sometimes what? with messages from it written on them. <gasps> like boo. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> if you say so, I don't really remember that, but I'm going to go with it. And spins around and it says boo and then it pops and you're like ah the horror of it all i mean all it right, might so as I, well be i got six out of ten your quizzes are better than the ones in this book i just want to say yeah his are um he does a lot of very specific um i don't know quizzes are hard though i'm gonna give him credit for that your quizzes are like artisanally handcrafted and delightful and these quizzes are like Stephen King's books, which they're marketed towards a mass audience and lacking in uh, any sort of real depth or personality. Well, thank you. That's quite a compliment. These quizzes only go up to 1990, so we'll probably never use this book again anyway. Oh, yeah, because, well, after this, after it, the second half of it, we're going to read Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep. I sure hated it. Um, maybe I'll feel differently about it this time, though. Um, I doubt it. Yeah, maybe you'll really yeah. hate it. I had a coworker that was reading it. And I was like, oh, you're reading that book. I sure hated it. And they were like, oh. And I'm like, you'll, you'll probably like it. I feel like none of none of our um, opinions have um, increased in esteem over the course of this podcast. We've never read a Stephen King book and been like, wow, you know, I thought this was good, but damn, what a classic. <laughs> no, we, we haven't, but you never know. It could happen. It happened with me and Hannibal. Boy, did I love Hannibal. Yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a book, for that sure. That is amazing. All anything, right. Anything else you want to say about it? Not at the moment. Um, and we still have a whole half a book to get through, so. Yeah, well, I, had, I had something else, but I'm going to save it for part two, because I think it's more applicable for that. Okay, next episode is going to be the second half of It, and then Dr. Sleep. We're running a little behind, but that's okay. No um, one knows what the calendar is except for us, Josh. You shouldn't reveal these to our listeners. That's a good point. Okay, no we're right on time. We're right on time. So just to clarify, we're going to start with part three, colon, grown-ups, and read until the end of the book next time. That's I got stuff to say about the movie for next time, too. 700 motherfucking pages. 700? How many have we already read? 480. Oh, and the book goes, I mean, it's over 1,143 pages. So it's 1,143. Oh, sorry, those are like acknowledgments. It's 1,153 pages. Oh, my God. So, yeah, we have over 700 pages left to read. I might have to start skimming. I skimmed a lot when I was a teenager because I was really used to Stephen King and the way he kind of went on forever. So I kind of just, I've naturally adopted this kind of skimming way of reading his books. But I've been paying attention this time because I'm, you know, I'm doing a damn podcast about it. But I might have to skim if we got 700 more pages. We're, I, I, I love doing a close reading of a book. And I've done close readings of all of his books and stories up until this one. I cannot take it. It physically pains me. This, these 700 pages are going to be like a fucking flip book. I'm just going to go, rrrr, done, boom, let's go. Okay, I'm probably not going to breeze through them quite as quickly, but I'm still going to have to uh, compromise my my morals on this one. I was being hyperbolic, Josh. No, I assumed you were. Where can our listeners contact us with comments, questions, concerns, or 
That's right. You can go to iTunes and you can rate our podcast and you can even leave a review um, if you would like to. But you can also email me directly at thegrossone at outlook.com if you have comments, questions, or you want to tell me things that we couldn't remember while we were recording. And then Josh will print out the emails and put them in an envelope and mail them to me since I don't use social media. You still use email, though. Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> but if there's like a tweet or something you have to print it out okay well i didn't give them a way to tweet us so that would that would be surprising but you know people still know me in real life and listen to my podcast so i guess they could tweet me if they really wanted to yeah you have a tweeter yeah okay all right well thank you chance for managing to get through this far into it and i wish you the best on the second half thank you Georgie. um, the we're talking about the book was the best part of reading it yes i agree um and thank you all to all our listeners for listening